0: The sermon text for today is Revelation 20, verses 7-10, through 10. but we're going to read a number of passages uh, leading up to that. Uh, I want you to be exposed to, to a number of passages, uh, one from outside the book of Revelation, but in the New Testament, and then the other two in the book of Revelation, and then eventually I will read all of verses 1-10 through 10 of Revelation 20. So if you're going to turn somewhere, I would uh, recommend that you turn to Revelation 20, Verse 1, and we'll eventually get there. Otherwise, you'll be spending all of your time uh, flipping through uh, the New Testament. So first of all, I'd like to read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. It is a passage that has to do with uh, the end of time. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians saying this, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. What day is Paul referring to except for the coming of Christ and the resurrection? Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so here we have Paul dealing with the subject of the the man of lawlessness who is elsewhere called the Antichrist who will be present at the end of time and will be motivated by Satan himself. The Lord will judge him when he returns Let's go now to Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. Revelation sixteen, twelve through 16. There we read, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, Christ says, I am coming like a thief Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. And So there, with the breaking of the sixth seal, we saw uh, this this, uh, great battle that did come to be, and a great deception throughout the whole earth. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 through 21. Revelation 19. Uh, The Lord will bring judgment to the beast and to the false prophet and to all who follow them. And then lastly, let's go to Revelation 20. And in fact, we will start with verse 7, which is our sermon text for today. Revelation 20, verse 7. There we read, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Thus far the reading of God's most holy word. And we do pray that the Lord would help us to understand it and to apply it. Uh, to our lives also. Uh, the question that we have been asking over the past couple of weeks is, when will the events described here in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, happen in relation to the bodily return of Christ? It's a very important question, which is why I've devoted uh, three uh, sermons uh, to it. Um, for it is here that the pre-, post- and amillennial positions uh, do Disagree. Uh, the pre say, after. The postmillennialists, speaking generally, say, b- before, but mainly in our future. And the amillennialists say, before, but in the past, present, and future. This I have uh, told you about in, in previous sermons. I'm not going to go into detail here. Um, I, I know that some, and by some I do not necessarily mean some of you, I know that some are tempted to avoid uh, this topic, after being exposed to these different opinions, uh, because of the complexity of it, I've actually heard some say, well, I'm not an amillennialist, nor a premillennialist, nor a postmillennialist. I am a panmillennialist. You've heard this, haven't you? And I've mentioned it before, I think. Uh, And this is what they mean by it. I simply believe that it will all pan out in the end. And so I think what they do is they grow frustrated with all of the complexity and all of the bantering and they get confused by it and discouraged by it and they say, you know what, it just doesn't matter. It's all going to pan out in the end. Uh, What is going to happen will happen and and I'm sure I'll be fine. There's a little bit of truth to that. Indeed, it will all pan out in the end. Uh, God and Christ are going to do what they are going to do and He will keep us to the very end. But I cannot really... Uh, commend uh, this approach, the pan-millennialist approach, for two reasons. Uh, first of all, eschatology does matter. In other words, what we believe concerning the future will inevitably have an impact upon how we live in the here and now. It, it matters, and it matters greatly. Eschatology, that is the study of what the Bible has to say concerning the time of the end, uh, produces more than just theological banter. It uh, it, it is... Practical, in fact, it affects how we live even today. It affects what we value. It impacts our priorities, our view of the end. Does indeed set our life off on a particular to direct to, uh, to direct. Oh, I can't say it. --re. We'll just leave it at that. It does as good as it's gonna get. I have something on the end of my tongue. This sore. It's making life difficult right now. Uh, I'll blame it on that. What we believe concerning the time of the end does matter. Um, The practicality of eschatology is really not hard to prove. Um, What if it were true, for example, that there were no resurrection and therefore no judgment? What if that were true? Uh, What if men and women simply went to the grave, returned to the dust, and were no more? That's eschatology, isn't it? That's something that has to do with our view of, of what will happen at the end of time. Um, but imagine that this is what you believed concerning the future, um, that, that we were all just kind of annihilated and, and went to nothing uh, at the end. Would it impact the way that you live today? Uh, without a doubt, it would impact the way that you live today. Indeed, there are many in this world who, who think this way. They believe that we live this life and we go to the grave and are simply uh, no more. Um, This will have an inevitable impact upon our morals and upon our ethics. We would reason this way, no resurrection, no judgment, no ultimate authority, no ultimate accountability, therefore let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That really is the the philosophy that comes along with this sort of uh, view. Uh, These are the ethics that naturally flow from it. Um, For all that has been said over the past couple of weeks concerning the differences between the pre-post and amillennial positions, it should be remembered that we do agree upon a lot with our post-millennialist and pre-millennialist brethren. If indeed you are an amillennialist, I am assuming that you are, but I do not know. Uh, What do we agree upon? Well, we do worship the same God, don't we? And we have faith in the same Christ whom He has sent. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the judgment of the wicked and life in the world to come for those who are washed in the blood of Christ. And so while we consider the differences between the pre-, post-, and amillennial positions, I think it would be very foolish to to lose sight of our common ground. Uh, But it would also be foolish to think that the differences that exist between these views don't matter at all. For they do. I wonder if you could take some time in this uh, next week to to consider um, some of the ways that these views might impact us. Uh, How how does holding to the pre-, post- or amillennial position change the way that we live our life in the here and now? And and when I say holding, I I mean really believing it to be true and, and not just mindlessly or heartlessly holding to the position Indeed, all three positions hold much in common, but what difference would their distinctives make in your life today? I say the differences would be rather profound. If Satan is Satan bound from deceiving the nations today or is he not? It's an important question. Put differently, what kind of authority did Christ receive when he rose from the grave? Is Satan under Christ's thumb or is he not? And the answers to these questions are immensely practical, for they do affect our ability to walk courageously in this world and to face difficulty, I think. If we're walking in this world and our view of it is that Satan is just free and that Christ does not have any authority over him at all, certainly that is going to produce a kind of fear a kind of timidity within our lives, a kind of cautiousness. But to believe that we are ch- children of, of, of the king and that our king does reign supremely over all things. Now, all of a sudden, we are to live with a certain kind of boldness in the world. And, and where are things headed also, we might ask? Will everything return to a focus upon ethnic Israel in the future with the rebuilt brick and mortar, mortar temple in Jerusalem? And the resumption of animal sacrifices. Is that where things are, are headed in the future? Um, you do know that some dispensational premillennialists send an awful lot of money to organizations that are preparing for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem right now. You know that, right? And why do they do this? Well, it is because they really believe their view. They really believe that in order for Christ to return and to usher in this millennium of theirs, the temple must be. Rebuilt, And so they send money off to organizations to promote and to bring about the rebuilding of this brick-and-mortar temple. And to them, if you were to ask them why, they would see it as kingdom work, you see. They really believe uh, their position. I, I wonder what you would think as a follower of Christ if the temple in Jerusalem were rebuilt and animal sacrifices were resumed today. What would you think of of that. I'm not asking you how would you view this politically speaking, but I'm asking you this question, how would you view it theologically? I bring this question up because I don't think it's too far-fetched, actually. Maybe we'll see it in our lifetime. Who knows? And if we do see it, I guarantee you that this question that I am now asking you, what would you think of it, will matter Tremendously. How would you interpret that action, the rebuilding of the temple and the resumption of animal sacrifices, in light of the Holy Scriptures? Would you applaud it as something good and God-honoring? Or would you condemn it as something idolatrous and false, religiously speaking? Uh, The New Testament Scriptures clearly condemn it. For the Jewish people to continue on with the old, te- old covenant forms of worship means that they are persisting in their rejection of Jesus as the Christ. That is what it means. That act of rebuilding the old covenant temple and continuing on with animal sacrifices is, is in effect them saying we are continuing to ignore Jesus as the Christ. We continue in our rejection of him. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the Christ and that he has fulfilled the Old Testament. He himself said, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Christ spoke directly to this issue. That the time has now come where this form of worship is to be taken away. It was good under the old covenant for God did command it and ordain it. But but here I am, the Christ, and now worshipers are going to worship not on this mountain or that, not at this temple or that, but we are to worship in spirit and in truth. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I could go on and on demonstrating that the New Testament condemns the rebuilding of a brick and mortar temple, Uh, the the, um, continuation of blood sacrifices and the ongoing distinction between Jew and Gentile in the kingdom of God, for in Christ we are one. But I wonder how would you interpret a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem today? Would you approve of it, theologically speaking? And I do think that a lot of Christians today would, in fact, applaud it. Do you agree with me? A lot of Christians today, particularly in this country, would would applaud it. Uh, Dispensational premillennialists have had such an impact upon our culture with their fiction books and their movies, and they have, I think, made a mess of our eschatology, and it has had an impact upon us, and it does uh, come down to uh, things that we deal with today. It is practical. I think they have introduced so much confusion, and I would not be surprised in the least to see the evil one use this confusion to severely divide the church in the future when many will be found applauding that which God has clearly condemned. Did not Christ himself say to the Jewish people concerning the temple, see, your house is left to you desolate? Matthew 23, 38. Was not the writer to the Hebrews clear when he did methodically make a case for this, that Christ fulfilled these old covenant forms of worship, and thus they have been taken away, they have been removed? The point is this, eschatology matters. What you believe concerning the trajectory of things will determine how you live in the here and now. It has a tremendous impact upon our lives today. I know the example is extreme, but there are some dispensational premillennials who when they think of kingdom work, they think of temple building. Uh, But for those of us who are all millennialists, we know that the kingdom of God advances in this world when the gospel is proclaimed and when the church, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, is built up strong and true. This is our mission, therefore. Our whole mission is, therefore, affected by what we believe to be true concerning the time of the end and the question, where are things headed? I'll say much less concerning the post-millennial view um, and how it would impact the way that we live in the here and now, only because the post-millennial view is less prominent, and I don't have much more time to devote to this idea. But I think it should come as no surprise that there are some postmillennialists who act as if the mission of the church is to promote the transformation or Christianization of culture. That is what you find in post-millennial circles, some of them, not all. But because of their view, they do uh, pretend that the mission of the church is the transformation or Christianization of culture. And why do they think that? Because they think that once the cultures of this world are Christianized, then the millennium will uh, be ushered in. And, of course, uh, we agree that when the gospel spreads and when churches thrive, cultures are sometimes impacted for the better, but not always. Sometimes the surrounding culture does respond rather aggressively against the spread of the the, the gospel in, in their midst. Uh, but, it is the, but is this the mission of the church? That is our question. Uh, we would say no. But if your view is that in the future a golden age will come, where the cultures of earth are Christianized, so that Christ does then rule and reign, it is not surprising that you might make this, the Christianization of cultures, your ultimate mission. The point I am making is obvious. What we believe concerning eschatology has a tremendous impact upon how we live in the here and in the now. The Amillennialist says, no, the church is to proclaim the gospel. She is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching those disciples all that Christ has commanded. She is to do this no matter the condition of the surrounding culture. She is to do this expecting opposition, but she's to do this boldly, knowing that Christ does rule and reign even now. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. This is how our eschatology should impact us then that we have a laser-like focus upon the Great Commission and that we do seek to carry it out because we know that our Lord reigns. I think so much more could be said concerning how our eschatology impacts the way that we live today, our values, our priorities, our confidence in Christ, producing either boldness or fear. But the point is this, eschatology matters. Whatever you believe, you should believe it sincerely and from the heart. But know that getting it wrong does have consequences. For us, the pan millennialist perspective, though there is a little bit of truth in it, I think it is actually very unhelpful in the end. Now, the second reason that I cannot commend the dismissive attitude of the pan millennialist is that God has revealed things concerning the end to us in His Word. He has revealed it, He has spoken to this issue, so that if it did not matter, He would not have said it. But God has revealed things concerning the end to us in His Word, and therefore, friends, we are not free to simply dismiss that which God has revealed in His Word because we find it to be difficult. We are to instead humbly receive God's inspired, inerrant, clear, and authoritative Word, and we are to live by it. And if the matter is not clear to us, it is not due to some defect in God or in His Word, but it is due to some defect in us. God speaks clearly. This we believe. But we do not always listen well. Wouldn't you agree with that? That is where the problem lies. And so therefore the solution to all of the confusion here or to the lack of clarity is not to dismiss what is said in God's Word, but to try to listen better to really give attention to what the Word of God does clearly and consistently say. Here in Revelation chapter 20, everything has come to focus upon the judgment of the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Remember that the two beasts and the harlot have been introduced and have been judged by the end of Revelation chapter 19. And now we are shown the judgment of the dragon who was first introduced to us way back in Revelation chapter 12. Notice that the judgment of the dragon comes in two stages here in this passage. Initially, he is bound, and eventually, he will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When was Satan bound? Uh, when. Was he judged initially? The answer is that he was bound at Christ's first coming. He was then bound not entirely, but specifically so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Satan was partially judged at Christ's first coming. He was defeated and he was detained then. He was restrained so that the church might carry out her mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. No longer does Satan have authority over the nations to keep them in darkness, for the nations have been given to Christ as His heritage, and the ends of the earth His possession, that is Psalm two eight. Indeed, Christ is King, and His kingdom was at hand, it was inaugurated, at His first coming, and it will be here in fullness, that is consummated, at His second coming, coming. Satan has not been eliminated then. He has not been rendered absolutely powerless. Indeed, he is alive and he is ferocious. Ferocious, He is like a rabid dog on a chain. That is how we are to view him. He does still prowl around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And as true as this is, we must also not ignore what the Scriptures say, that he is also already judged. He is already defeated. He is already detained and he is restrained by our God even today. Uh, this will be his condition throughout the period of time signified by the 1000 years of Revelation 20. You can call it the church age. You can call it the age of the spirit. You can call it this present evil age. You can even call it the millennium if you'd like. But whatever you call it, it is the the period of time between Christ's first and second coming. It is during this time that people experience the first death, that is physical death. And it is during this time that those who die in Christ do then experience the first resurrection. They do rule and reign with Christ, not in body but in soul. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death, that is the final judgment after the return of Christ, has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. That is Revelation 20, verse 6. It is during this age that Satan is bound. He has already been partially judged. He is defeated, detained, and restrained. That is clear by now. How many times have I said it over the past few weeks? I think this is the third time now I have emphasized that. But I want it to be clear in your minds because it matters. This is how we are to view the evil one. Still ferocious, still dangerous, still seeking to to devour but but under god 's thumb, restrained by him, not totally free to deceive the nations as he once was. now, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be fully and finally judged. he will be removed entirely from the world then when the thousand years are ended. He, along with everyone else who opposes God and resists his rule from among both angels and men, will be uh, Um, who have been deceived by the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see that there in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 20. When will this happen? At the end of the period of time that is symbolized by the number 1,000 here in Revelation 20. This will happen and this is key, brothers and sisters. This will happen at the same time or shortly thereafter as what was described to us back in Revelation chapter nineteen, verse twenty. This is so key. This will happen, this casting of the dragon or Satan into um, to, to destruction, into the lake of fire. It's going to happen at the same time, historically speaking, as what was described in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, where we read, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who, in his, its presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. Now, if you assume that the book of Revelation is organized chronologically, you will think that the two beasts will be judged. Here here is the conclusion you'll come to. If it's organized chronologically to where chapter 20 follows chapter 19 historically, then you will assume that the two beasts will be judged. Then there will be a thousand years that will pass after which the dragon will be judged. And what I am saying is that it is far better to recognize that the book is organized thematically. First it describes the judgment of the two beasts, but now the book turns to focus upon the judgment of Satan. In the book of Revelation, the judgment of Satan comes ten verses after the judgment of the beast, but in fact these events will transpire when? On the same day when the Lord Returns. Both will happen at the end of this present evil age when Christ returns bodily to judge the living and the dead. I should have done it. I, I was tempted to again put up one of those incredibly complex dispensational charts for you. Do you remember the one that I put up months ago? In order to show you what happens when you interpret the book of Revelation as if it's organized chronologically the book of Revelation is in fact showing you what will happen on the last day over and over and over again. But if you, if you think it's chronologically organized, then you must spread all of that out. Something that was meant to overlap, this will happen on the last day and so will this and so will this. If you see it as organized chronologically, you have to spread it all out and things become so incredibly complex. The one thing following the next, following the next, it, it, it just turns into nonsense ultimately. Um, but I think you can see uh, where things are going in the book of Revelation. A story is being told. The enemies of God and of the people of God have been introduced one at a time, and now they are being very systematically and very quickly removed from the scene one at a time. The dragon The two beasts, the harlot, the harlot, the two beasts, and now the dragon. What is happening here as we are experiencing the story of the book of Revelation? Except this, God's creation is being progressively purged of all that is evil within it. That is a story that is being told. That is what we are experiencing as the book of Revelation unfolds. It is being purged of the darkness that did enter into it by the fall of man. The light is being separated now from darkness, the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. And what will remain at the very end of time, what will remain then after all has been accomplished except this, God will abide with His people in the new heavens and the new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Revelation twenty one four tells us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God and Christ and His people will remain along with His elect angels. Everything that is evil will be relegated to the lake of fire. It will be then, on that day after Christ returns, that Satan will be absolutely powerless. There he will be imprisoned completely and tormented day and night forever and ever. The dragon himself, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, will be ultimately and finally judged then on that day. He is here in Revelation 20, verse 10, removed from the scene, and notice he is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation. Not only does Revelation 20 speak of the binding of Satan at Christ's first coming and the final judgment of Satan at his second coming. It also says something about the releasing of Satan. You notice that here in this text. In fact, the majority of the text that we are considering today deals with the releasing of Satan from being bound. And this we must consider. Satan's release was first mentioned at the end of verse 3. Picking up with verse 2, we read... And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. But then we have this word, until the thousand years were ended, after that he must be released for a little while. And so we are told of Satan's binding, but we are also warned that at the very end of this time, signified by 1,000 years, Satan will have to be released for a little while, briefly. And so Satan was bound from deceiving the nations at Christ's first coming, but he will at the end of time be released. And what do you think he will do when he is released? Undoubtedly, he will begin to do that which he was restrained from doing while bound, So he was bound and held back from doing something, that is, from deceiving the nations. And when he is unbound, when he is unchained or released, he will very aggressively, having been frustrated for all of this time, he will very aggressively then uh, seek to deceive the nations once more. Uh, Verse 7 picks up where verse 3 left off and describes it to us. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison And what will he do? And he will come out to do the very thing that he was bound from doing, to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, for their number is like the sand of the sea. When will this happen, brothers and sisters? It will happen immediately before Christ returns. It will happen at the end of the church age. It will happen at the end of the age of the spirit. It will happen at the end of the so-called millennium, not literal but figurative millennium. It will happen then, immediately before Christ returns. And what will Satan do when he was released? When he is released, he will again deceive the nations. Notice that it is not one or two nations that he will deceive, but the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. This is another way of saying the nations throughout all the earth. All nations he will deceive. Uh, they are here called Gog and Magog not because only two nations are in view Uh, For that would contradict what has just been said concerning the nations being gathered from the four corners of the earth. But so that we might see this end of time event in light of what was said in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 concerning Israel's pagan oppressors under the Old Covenant. Gog and Magog oppressed God's people under the Old Covenant and God judged them. And what is being said here by the use of the names Gog and Magog is that the same thing will happen at the end of time, but it is clear it will be on a universal and climactic scale. Furthermore, we are told that those who are gathered for battle are like the sand of the sea. In other words, they are so numerous, they cannot even be counted. And what will these nations do once they are again deceived at the end of time? Certainly they will be given to unbelief and to rebellion against God in Christ that is clear they will be deceived from being able to themselves believe upon Christ but more than that they will cooperate with one another to ferociously oppose and oppress God's people living throughout the earth so as to destroy them that is the picture that has been painted uh, throughout the book of of Revelation Uh, the New Testament elsewhere speaks of this kind of activity at the end of time great deception great opposition to the people of God verse 9 and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city but fire came down from heaven and consumed them so here is the question you might be wondering will there be a great tribulation at the end of time where will there be a great tribulation at the end of time And I would answer it this way, no, not if you have in mind the great tribulation of the pre-tribulational premillennialists. No, there will not be a great tribulation that lasts three and one-half years that begins after the Christians are secretly raptured out of the world, all others being left behind. Uh, That story is a myth. But yes, there is reason to believe that at the very end of time, the church... Uh, that is to say, the true church will find herself under assault as the nations of the earth come against her to seek her destruction. There is evidence of that, that indeed there will be a time of great tribulation. This whole period of time between Christ's first and com- second coming is marked by tribulation. Christ himself said so. But what we do see here in the book of Revelation and either else, and also elsewhere in the New Testament is that at the end of time, things will be Intensified. I read from 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 10, and Revelation 16, 12 through 16, also 19, 17 through 21, and also, of course, our text here in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, at the beginning of the sermon, in order to demonstrate that the New Testament in general, and the book of Revelation in particular, portrays the days immediately preceding the return of Christ as difficult days for the people of God. It is in those days that false teaching will. Abound. Political powers will persecute intensely. Indeed, the Antichrist, who is also called the Lawless One, will himself be present, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2 8. The nations will be gathered to war against Christ and his people. When all is considered, I think it is very evident that the church will find herself under an organized and worldwide assault. Before Christ returns, it is to this situation that the Lord will return to rescue his beloved bride. Do you fear it? The whole point of the book of Revelation is to say you should not. It is not you should not fear it because you will not be present, but it is that you should not fear it because Christ reigns and he is able to sustain you, he is able to keep you even in the midst of severe persecution. Clearly, the people of God do suffer in this world. Even some in those seven churches to whom the letter uh, was originally addressed were suffering great persecution. And why was the letter given to them? Persevere. Continue on till the end. Where is your God and where is Christ? Enthroned. And though Satan might ferociously attack you in various ways through false teaching, through persecution, through the seductiveness of the world, through the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot... You are able to stand in the face of it. Indeed, God has Satan on a chain and will restrain him in this way and in that until the Lord returns. Revelation sixteen twelve through sixteen describes the last day as a day when the kings of the whole world will be assembled for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Do you remember that? Revelation sixteen forty four or sixteen fourteen, rather. We have that picture, a great battle. Nations gathered together. All the kings of the earth gathered together to war against Christ and His people. Revelation nineteen seventeen. Also, John saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And what is he calling out to the what is this angel calling out to the birds about he's saying come and gather for the great supper of God it's almost as if he is mocking the enemies of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and the riders and the flesh of all men both free and slave both small and great and John saw the beast And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur again by the end of Revelation chapter 19 we have this vision of of, at the end of time immediately before uh, the return of Christ the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to war against Christ and his people Uh, it is this great last battle that is described to us there and here in Revelation 29 we have again the same scene set it is not that they are chronologically one after the other but that the book of Revelation is again recapitulating as it has over and over again and they that is the armies of the nations of the earth who are like the sand of the sea in number marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city but fire came down from heaven and consumed them again the same image is portrayed to us a time of difficulty for the people of God at the end before Christ returns there are a few things to notice about this passage One, it is yet another perspective on the last day, which has been described to us already in 1612 and 1917, that has been said. Two, remember that it is symbolic, like everything else in the book of Revelation. Uh, No, all of God's people will not literally be gathered together in the beloved city of Jerusalem. If we were to take this passage literally, then we would think that at the end of time, all Christians from the world over, or even much worse, ethnic Jews as if that's what the focus is upon here, non-believing, perhaps, ethnic Jews. No, it is not that. Uh, If we were to take it literally, though, we would have to imagine the people of God in one form or another gathered together in the beloved city, and literally the armies of the earth all coming to that region in order to assault and to lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. It's symbolic. Uh, The nations will not literally surround that city with their armies. Jerusalem symbolizes instead God's people living throughout all the earth. Remember, brothers and sisters, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In this age, the holy place is protected, measured by God, while the outer court and the holy city is left exposed, unmeasured, and is given over to be trampled by the nations. That we were shown in Revelation chapter 11. And so though on the visionary level, we do see hordes of soldiers rushing to swiftly And in an unhindered fashion, uh, move across the the plains towards the city of Jerusalem. On the historical level, the church will be scattered across the whole earth, just as she is now. Where is Christ's church now? Except scattered across the the whole earth. Uh, But the nations will conspire together to persecute her to the point of annihilation. Uh, That is the meaning of this vision. Three Notice that God is sovereign even over these nations as they assault the bride of Christ. It is God who allows them to gather against His people. He permits it. It is His decree that by assembling them in this way, He will then judge them at the end of time. I I think this must have been a great encouragement to the Christians who originally received this letter in the first century AD who were experiencing, even then, persecution. Uh, For from the human perspective, they would have been tempted to say, where is my God, as they suffered? Where is He? Uh, Indeed, the Romans seem so powerful. And indeed, this persecution seems so unbearable. And and where is my God? Uh, But what does the book of Revelation reveal from beginning to end? That God is sovereign still. He is seated on His throne, and so is Christ. They see all. They have all power and they are able to keep those who belong to them. If it is true uh, that this great persecution will come upon the church at the end of time, uh, it also must be true that the temporary and limited persecutions experienced throughout the world today will happen in, in the same way. God will permit it and He is sovereign even over persecution. That evil that he permits is not by a bare or purposeless permission, but instead there is a reason for it. And God, in his infinite wisdom, is able to fiercely and faithfully preserve those who belong to him and to judge those who do evil in this world. Fourthly, notice how quickly our Lord makes an end to the dragon In verse 10, we simply read, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In my opinion, the brevity of the description of Satan's destruction is very astonishing, especially when you consider how much trouble he has caused throughout history Beginning with his first appearance in the garden when he did tempt the first woman and the first man to sin, just think of how astonishing this is. I mean, you read the Bible from Genesis three onward, and doesn 't Satan and this this dragon doesn 't he doesn 't he loom large? Look at what a mess he has made of the world. Look at how powerful he is to deceive. look at how Uh, ferocious he is as it is manifested in persecution. Everything about the evil one in this present evil age looks large, as if he is going to be a true force to be reckoned with, You know, as if there is going to be this great battle where there is give and take between Christ and his armies and Satan and his armies, who are as numerous as the sand of the sea. All things considered, Genesis 3 onward, and all things considered when we go outside and look at the world today, you might imagine that the battle is going to be a very difficult one. And yet at the conclusion of it all, when the destruction of Satan is finally uh, communicated, it, it's, it's, it's communicated and just aligned. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. And he's mentioned not again. What is the message then? Though your enemy might seem to be so great and so powerful and so uh, so terrifying, your Lord is greater He is so much greater that he is able to condemn him with the word of his mouth. He is simply slain by the word of Christ, and it is finished. It is finished. Let's make a few points of application before we conclude. Brothers and sisters, it is important that you and I expect conflict to the very end in this world. It's important that you and I expect there to be difficulty in this world on to the very end. I do uh, sympathize with those uh, who are in churches and and sitting under teaching where the message is this, God will not allow his people to experience tribulation, but will remove them from it before it comes. That that is a terrible thing to be told. Because in in reality, the people of God do go out into the real world and they experience very difficult things. Christ instead was much more realistic. He was much more honest. Where in John 16.33, he looked to his disciples and said, In the world you will have tribulation. He wasn't afraid to tell them the hard truth. That I'm going to go to the Father, but you are going to remain here in the world, and in the world you will have tribulation. How much better it is to tell the truth about the matter It's the difficult thing to say, but it's the right thing to say. Peter also wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if if, uh, some strange thing were happening to you. Why did Peter say this? Except that he knew that Christians were probably prone to believe this lie. That because you are God's child now, that everything will go smoothly for you and that God wants things to go smoothly for you. If that is what you believe, then you're going to be surprised when some difficult thing comes against you. But what does Peter say? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing will happen to you. Expectations matter, don't they? We ought to expect... uh, Things that are true. And Christ has been honest with us that we will have difficulty in this world. Indeed, it will continue until He returns. In fact, it might even escalate near to the end of time. This we believe to be the case. Let us not also lose heart when we face tribulation. Christ said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Christ is saying, I am. I have overcome, I have accomplished your salvation, I have been given all authority in heaven on earth, therefore you are to take courage in this. Peter also said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So Peter does encourage his audience to rejoice when they suffer, knowing that we are participating in and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And all of that is leading to what? It is leading ultimately to glory. These are the things we need to hear as we sojourn in this world, brothers and sisters, not the lies of those who say life will be easy for the people of God, but the truth of God's Word, which admits it will be difficult, but that God is able to preserve us on to the end. Let us also remember where God and Christ are now, And let us truly believe that they are all-powerful and able to bring us safely home. Indeed, that is what the book of Revelation is communicating from beginning to end. God and Christ are enthroned in heaven, and they are all-powerful. They are able to bring us safely home. As I look out upon our congregation, I do hope that you truly believe these things. I know that for some of you, you are prone to fear. You are prone to living a very timid lifestyle and I wish that it were not so. I know that it is just the reality of it but I am as your pastor in this moment exhorting you to truly believe these things and to live courageously in this world. Not being constantly driven by fear but being driven instead by God's love for you and reassured of it that you are able to live with boldness on until the end of time when Christ returns. Let's go to prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the hope that we have for the life to come. It is a sure hope, not based upon wishful thinking, but based upon Christ's act. He lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended. Indeed, Lord, help us to live in this world with our treasure there in heaven and not in this world. Lord, increase our faith that we would truly believe that Christ is victorious, sovereign, all-powerful, able to preserve. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would be able to rightly interpret the difficulty that we face in this world. Indeed, we do face difficult things. Lord, help us to see them with eyes of faith. Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, I pray for those among us who are struggling with fear that you would help them to overcome it. Increase their faith, Lord. May they see you where you are, seated at the Father's right hand. And may they cling to you, trusting in you always. Father, I do pray that you would prepare us for whatever is in our future. None of us know, Lord, but indeed for some of us individually, the future will involve difficult things. And may those difficult things that we experience serve to refine us. May they serve to strengthen us. May they serve to deepen our love for you, God the Father and for Christ whom you have sent. May we see that these difficulties are not meaningless but have been permitted to come into our lives because you do love us and because you are drawing us to yourself. Lord, indeed, it may be that we as a church experience difficulty in in the years to come. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith corporately, that we would be willing to walk with you even in the midst of persecution, Lord. And we, Father, think of those brothers and sisters in Christ that we do have the world over, some of them who are right now facing persecution. Lord, strengthen them that they would set their eyes upon Jesus and walk faithfully in this world to the very end. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.